This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontier show number 33, recorded on November 30th, 2016. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective, although not for very long. I am your host, Jim Collins, and broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska. And of course, we post the show with world-class show notes, and they're mostly world-class because Christian writes them out at the AverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can always contact us via email. Send that email to me, Jim at the AverageGuy.tv. If you want to go to the mastermind himself, Christian at the AverageGuy.tv gets you there. You can track me down on Twitter, just at Jay Collison. Of course, TheAverageGuy.tv is powered by Maple Grove Partners. Web hosting is secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people you know and trust. Of course, you know the Christian guy. He's somewhere on the screen. Uh, for more information, visit MapleGrovePartners.com and some great plans that start as inexpensively as $10 a month. And now Cyber, Cyber Frontiers is a part of the Geeks Network. Find the link to this show and many other great podcasts out at the geeksnetwork.com. All right. Joining me from his enclave at the University of Maryland in College Park, which I will be there in two weeks to see Christian. Welcome back to Cyber Frontiers. Thanks. Good to be on. I know we haven't been able to get one out in a while. Uh, it's good to have you down here in two weeks. And um, I'm going to jump into some security tonight on stuff that kind of took us by surprise over the holidays. And um, I think folks should find it interesting. It, provides a real world perspective of what are some of the security challenges that I'm encountering now in my day-to-day -day operational life, um, but also that the average users are becoming increasingly aware of um, as this impacts their own services. So I'm kind of excited to uh, have a chance to do that today, walk through some screens. We're specifically going to be looking at web vulnerabilities and, you know, as blogging and people using blogs gets more and more popular, so too does um, folks' as blogs getting hosed essentially by some really nasty malware. And as a person running a hosting infrastructure for our podcast communities, that's a major concern for me. And so I'm actually going to walk through a case study that happened at Maple Grove Partners um, in the last week on a particular malware that um, kind of took hold of someone, a customer's website and kind of what are all the forensic analysis and other things that had to go into triaging that, figuring out what it is, and what are some of the things that folks are doing in order to uh, curb the, um, the uh, onset. Yeah, I think pretty cool because we oftentimes, if you go with the GoDaddy or Bluehost or whatever, you never see the behind the scenes stuff. You don't, you're not going to get access to this kind of information. You're not going to kind of know the things that happen. Uh, I think one of the beauties of being a Maple Grove, you know, partner or host provider uh, and being a customer is you. And so we get some, we kind of get some access to you. And so I've been looking forward to this because you and I worked on it. You worked on it, um, you know, over the, over the holiday weekend, uh, you shot me some notes and said, Hey, can you do, can you do some stuff for me? And, uh, and it, it's, it is one of those things. I mean, even with one of those other providers, you don't see necessarily the attacks unless you've put some security software in your WordPress instance to make it happen. And man, Christian, I, th I guess one of the things that's opened my eyes to this and why I'm looking forward to it is because I just didn't realize the volume of attacks that go on and uh, just some ways to prevent them. So why don't you dig in? Yeah, and I mean, that, that's the reality is that most don't. I think even most um, shared hosting providers don't uh, go daddy and otherwise because you look at some of their system configurations and um, it's pretty amazing to see how quickly um, these providers who don't really ensure a full comprehensive security plan end up, you know, if one customer gets hosed with malware, um, now you're looking at multiple customers on that box getting hosed uh, and impacted by the same thing. So um, when I'm looking at the security, my number one concern is A, from a customer perspective, I want to be providing kind of a high level, I call it a shroud or a safety net that my customers don't even know exists, but that is protecting their websites. So most host providers are going to throw you straight onto the bare bone World Wide Web, and they're not going to block anything, and that's going to be up to you. And so Maple Grove does that very differently. We look at kind of real-time threat uh, analytics 
that are coming into our own network and we build analytic models based off all the log and traffic data that we generate to figure out who's in our network at any specific time. And we come up with automated rule sets that will automatically um, push and update our edge definitions of who we should be allowing in and who we shouldn't. Um, we also have an open security model, meaning if you were to email me or write me and say, hey, I want the same border protection that uh, Maple Grove has for my home network or for wherever, um, there are open public lists that Maple Grove publishes with all the current IP addresses that we're blocking, why we're blocking them, et cetera. So from that, we have a very kind of open model for um, threat intelligence. And I think that's an important first step. But really what happened um, over the course of this last week is a, is a case in point case study in uh, malware, specifically showing how customers really, I don't think, realize that when they install plugins on their WordPress environment or in a blog environment, they're putting at the, themselves at a huge risk because they are essentially installing something that is an extension to WordPress or to whatever their content management system is that has core functionality and access to their database, to the web server that it runs on, likely the PHP instance and MySQL, and as a result, um, if they install a plugin where the developer hasn't properly done their job in ensuring they write secure code, they can really be opening themselves up and potentially other customers, depending on how the web host goes about implementing it. So um, today I'm going to talk about kind of a specific worm that we saw, which exhibited what we call PHP object injection. This is a technique that essentially when there is a vulnerability that can be taken advantage of um, that is usually caused by a developer not properly coding their plugin, this allows attackers to basically upload custom code into your FTP, execute that custom code, and then essentially um, use your web server as a remote control bot, steal and exfiltrate your data, and potentially continue to breach other systems and provide up to maybe root level network access on the box that it compromised. Um, so to start with that, we're gonna first um, kind of walk you through an incident response that we had last week um, that will specifically kind of paint the picture. And then I will start screen sharing and walking through what some of the forensic steps were that we had to take. Um, so first, um, it's, Pretty important to note that there are kind of two ways that you find out that something is going wrong with your network. One is an active approach, which you're actively doing threat analytics, monitoring, and you're looking ahead of time to see if there are things that are happening that maybe are anomalous or don't fit the statistical norms. Um, the second case that can happen is that you have an abnormal behavior that you know shouldn't be happening and you know something is wrong. Um, in the case of this particular incident, Maple Grove noticed that we were starting to send out um, spam email from our corporate server and that our reputation uh, would have been impacted by that. And so that was our, our warning sign that something in the network potentially uh, has gone wrong. And um, it was relatively quick for us to be able to make that determination um, it's fairly easy to see what mail is getting queued and backlogged and um, there were, the warning signs were kind of there that something wasn't quite right. So um, forensically, the first step was to look in our mail queue and take a look at what spam messages were trying to be queued to be sent out through our network. And what we discovered is that they were being relayed through one of our customers, right? So when a web server has a software like WordPress or otherwise, it uh, very frequently might send email to its admins, to its bloggers and publishers and subscribers. And so web servers have to have the ability to relay email that is generated by the system through an actual mail server that then gets delivered to your inbox. And so in this case, what we were able to do is trace the domain name that was relaying these messages on our, on our network, which website was responsible for generating them and trying to forward them out through the mail relay. So that gave us a good indication of what website had a compromise, right? Um, and then what we were able to do is start to cross-correlate that picture with what all of our analytics and other data um, shows. So what we're really looking for is 
what is the abnormal behavior on this website? We know that it's starting to send spam. Why is it? How is it able to do this? Um, and so we first started with a file system um, check, right? So I wanted to scan kind of the root of the domain, see if there were any active signatures, any obvious things that would show that something's on there that's not supposed to be. Um, from an FTP's perspective, it was clear that no one other than the customer had been on their FTP, right? Which I would be shocked if that was the case because we use RSA encryption. We don't use any passwords for FTP. Brute force is a very unlikely um, technique in this case. So um, this gives me the clue as, a, as an administrator that somehow a file was modified or added through the internet, right? So it wasn't coming from FTP. It had to be something that changed with the website configuration. So I ran this scan and nothing showed up, right? There were no signatures, nothing obvious. Um, but in manual inspection, I have a pretty good uh, intuition on what are the WordPress files that are and aren't supposed to be there, right? So I know the core WordPress system files. I know what plugins are supposed to look like. And I noticed pretty early on, both in the root directory and in a couple of subdirectories, that there were files there that were definitely not part of the um, WordPress installation. And so they were disguised to look as, as if they were. They chose names that you would expect to see in any kind of installation, you know, config.php, function.php, et cetera. Um, but a, tale, a telltale sign is looking at the date on which that file was created or modified. And I noticed that the uh, file creation date was very recent and very different from when the rest of the WordPress installation was uploaded or updated on that FTP. So I instantly saw that those files were um, suspicious. And what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to show you what one of these sample files looks like and what my indicators were that this was unwanted. Um, so I'm going to screen share. And on your left, what you see basically is I just had this open in Notepad++. Um, let's hide Pull up this. the resolution just a little bit, Christian. Yep, one second. Uh, font. Search font. Uh, zoom window. I suppose I should have figured this out earlier. <laughs> um, plus, it was a, is it a control plus key or something like that. I feel like there should be, but I feel like at the same time, this is a little different. Um, it's a little small on the screen. View, zoom, there we go. Zoom in, control mouse wheel up. Aha. Perfect. Okay, there perfect. Right there. Good. Thanks. So this was the only line I saw in one of these sample files. In this case, it was called functions.php. And what you notice is a couple really strange things, right? Number one, there's no code comments. There's no developer comments. All we see is this function called eval. Then we see a, a function, or I'm sorry, that's really a construct. We see a function called base64 decode. Now, base64 is an encoding. So what that does is it allows you to kind of um, convert text into a kind of a compressed um, representation. It's not encryption, right? So encoding and decoding is intended to be reversible. Um, a great example is if like, if you thought when you were a kid that you were a cool, super cool spy because you said the letter A was the letter D and the letter uh, D was the letter Z and then only your friend knew the mapping between changing those letters. This is kind of what this encoding decoding is. So I know right away that there's really only two scenarios in which base64 decode is gonna be used as a function in PHP. One is if someone has written a proprietary plugin uh, or has developed a proprietary plugin for um, WordPress, they are very likely to use this technique in some places to obfuscate what their code logic is doing. Again, this is not an encryption technique and it's very easily reversed and it really is not used unless um, someone doesn't care that much if someone is smart enough to, to put it back together. Um, the second thing is for malware, right? So when we transform what our source code looks like into a new representation, i.e. in this encoded format, we can evade signature detection. And this is exactly what's happening, right? Um, as it turns out, once I fully reverse engineered and disassembled this, the signature was immediately picked up by my antivirus um, 
signature definition on my desktop, right? So I copied these files down locally to analyze them and my desktop made no qualms about reading and opening this file as I show it to you now. As soon as I put it in its raw decompiled form, bam, signature was found and it, and it swooped it out. Um, so uh, the process to actually convert this is very simple. Um, if you go onto the interwebs, you can look for a base64 decoder. Um, you can do this for any of your WordPress plugins or otherwise that um, do this. And essentially, uh, you copy and paste the, um, all of the encoding, right? So you see basically everything inside the quotes is what we want. So we're going to remove those end parentheses and we're going to remove this beginning function. This is our encoding right here. So if I copy that whole thing and put it into the decoder online, um, what we're going to get is even more interesting. Um, so now it's like, oh, this is weird. Um, when we decode this, we see um, this was our result. And it, that's very fascinating because now you're looking at this and you're like, wait, I thought I decoded it. And now I'm just seeing more uh, encoding gar garbled, right? But no, this is a little different. Now notice that you see variable decorrelations. So you see array zero equals this, array one equals this. This is just a cute trick that they use to obfuscate and evade signature detection again, right? So they basically rolled it up in the same encoding multiple times by encoding the data that was already encoded. And we can see this by scrolling to the bottom and seeing that there was essentially a for loop that iterated through each of these variables and then did another decode operation and that final string was the result of what we were supposed to see. Um, and so once I unroll that again, this is the actual file as modified by me for some purposes here that gets um, created. And this is a PHP fully functioning file. And what you'll observe is that there are some functions, there's some setting going on, um, but I really want to give you an idea of just how nasty this stuff is. So this file was about 1,500 lines of PHP code. It had the ability to uh, do command and control, so uh, accept remote commands from the outside. It had the ability to listen to your network, to um, list files on your network, to run a user shell and type commands onto the web server that was running this. I mean, really just the possibilities were limitless. And so this is a, a toolkit. We call this a PHP rootkit in which um, kind of hackers, once they take advantage of an exploit, they put all their goodies on the server so that they can own it as much as possible based on the security that is or isn't there. And so... Um, what you end up getting, and these are screenshots, um, is, oh, I probably should have put those in the right place too. Uh, let me stop this for one second. Okay. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the, the, the goal. Is so once you take advantage of a given exploit, regardless of what it is, you, the attacker, wants to then put your own custom tools on to either do reconnaissance, run custom commands, do et cetera, et cetera. And so here's what um, it actually looks like. So this is a screenshot. Um, this file, again, it's a PHP file. So they're trying to put custom code on your website that you don't even know is there. And then they have a web browser or a bot basically go to a URL where they uploaded this resource and then they're using this. This is a web-based file explorer of the file system where this website was running. So the attacker was basically able to create an interactive web um, FTP, so to speak, um, that had um, access to read files, upload, change files, execute, etc. You can see this is a SQL browser where they would have attempted to try and uh, attack and infiltrate databases. And that's and bypassing can, your security, your FTP security that was on there, right? Um, in a way, right? So instead of going through an FTP server, they're basically writing an FTP server in PHP, uploading it as a file to your um, to your share and then accessing it from the browser. Turning it on and making it available to them and they don't need a username or password and it gives yep. them... System. And they basically put a password on this file so that only they can get to it and so forth. Um, and then even here, this is a console. And um, as you can see, they would actually be able to type user commands just like an administrator would here 
you know, where I can type commands and list a directory and so forth, they're able to simply um, run these same commands and uh, use it as if they actually have a shell. Now, I'm going to talk about a couple caveats of why Maple Grove was able to defeat this pretty soundly. Um, number one, we have uh, containerization, which essentially means that the PHP um, software that runs WordPress and all these other things um, is only allowed to view certain directories for each customer website. So if we revisit the, um, this first screenshot, this is the root file system for the particular website that had been um, taken advantage of. If I, if I, the attacker, tried to drill up to the next directory up where you would start seeing more of the system and other things that are designed to be admin only, he, would be unable, he or she would be unable to because there are protections in place that um, force them to stay within this local file system. Um, the second observation is um, the command console. Now, this is really, really important. Um, and a lot of first-time admins or shared hosts that aren't doing this right pay big consequences. Um, if, a con if, a, if a web server is running as a privileged user on this system and they have this console up, they can pretty much do administrative actions on that server. They pretty much completely own your box at this point. Um, there are two common protections that need to be employed to ensure that they cannot take advantage of this capability. Number one is each website, when you're doing your containerization strategy, should be running under a least privileged or specific user for that customer site. So each customer on the Maple Grove platform has their own least privileged user. So if their container becomes compromised, it is their least privileged user that is running this website. And if a, um, let's say the attacker was having access to the shell, they would be running in terminal as this least privileged user. They wouldn't be running as root or some other admin based um, or privilege based account. The second thing is that you really have to be cognizant of disabling functions in PHP that you know your customers are not gonna need, that you know attackers are gonna use to be able to build this functionality. So PHP has the ability to make system calls directly to the operating system. And basically, the reason why they are able to recreate a, term, a terminal and a shell in a website is because of these specific very privileged functions that PHP provides. So if you're a web host and you're smart, you disable these functions and do not allow them to run. That way the shell is dead on arrival if it uploads. So in this case, even though they're able to upload the file to the compromised customer's website, the shell is completely useless. If they try and type any commands, they'll get no results back because PHP will basically ignore the functions that are written in that PHP object that they created that we showed earlier, and they're not gonna be able to make any progress. Um, so those are kind of the two core things. Now, again, this would be like if a user is manually sitting here and doing this, but for a lot of folks, when a vulnerability is published or disclosed, um, attackers are gonna wanna build the biggest botnet possible in the quickest amount of time. So all the attacks are gonna be drive-by and they're gonna be automated. And the idea there is that they wanna get as many systems owned as possible in the shortest amount of time possible. And the way that they do that is by creating a command and control uplink from your website that is compromised to their resource. Um, so if we take a look at mm, a file that I neglected to upload. Um, yeah, so embedded throughout my customer's um, compromised website were these types of files. And what we see here, it's a very simple file, very few lines of code. What's going on here? Essentially, if I'm a botnet and I want to communicate commands to your website, now that I've uploaded this file to your directory, I can make requests to this file and get responses back from the web server. And what they basically did was they created a custom token that only their bot knows. So basically, if Jim Collison were to visit this URL on the compromised website, nothing would happen for him. So they have a custom key and they have a custom um, input to take values and post them to the web server. And what you see happening here is gun compress, uh, 
and base64 to code the chunk result. So what's going on here? It is basically the, the botnet is sending data to your web server and it's getting decoded into commands that are then running in this, um, basically this kit or this framework that the attacker uploaded. So your um, compromised site is basically sending and receiving commands or data and in the case of what was going on here, it was sending commands to basically try and it would send the spam email messages as this encoded compressed object. And then those emails would get decompressed and then tried to get relayed through our network and sent out as legitimate emails. Um, now, again, we employ uh, some pretty beefy analytics. So um, we can actually observe this behavior and see what was going on. And I'm going to look up mainconfig.php throughout the Maple Grove Partner uh, network in, uh, in our history. And what you're going to end up seeing is that um, we were able to show uh, in our data where the command and control bot was trying to basically send commands and receive them to do certain things. And so you can see the time interval, you can see that it's posting data. And so we were able to track and monitor this throughout the attack to basically know exactly how the botnet was trying to communicate with our services um, and what we had to do to um, stop the attack. And so this is really important because you have to have kind of a full perspective and a full view of what's going on um, it's one thing to be comfortable with reverse engineering and knowing what the attacker's code kit is trying to do. It's another thing um, to actually have the analytics and the data to back up um, what's going on in your network at a given time. And so this is really important philosophy for us. Um, all the things that you've seen in the worst case scenario, if you had an administrator poorly configure these sites and resources, um, based on this type of malware and the compromise on our customer um, side, it could have led to complete compromise of your web server with admin privileges. Because we um, put in all the different security mechanisms um, at risk, the worst that happened in our case is that they were trying to send out these spam email functions. They didn't have any administrative privileges. They weren't able to leak or modify any data. And so really it was only impacting the local customer um, in that instance. Now you might ask yourself, um, you know, well, what are still the downsides of that? I mean, what's going on? What is the, um, how did this get here in the first place? And what are the implications for the customer that it impacted? And so in, this is how sadly most WordPress type stuff happens these days. A plugin vulnerabilities website that literally publishes when a plugin becomes vulnerable, um, recently disclosed on November 15th, that Google Analytics Counter Tracker um, is a plugin that has PHP object injection. What this basically meant was that attackers could um, craft a specific message to the web server that allowed them to upload their custom files that allowed them to then um, basically run their infection on the website. Um, what's really um, amazing about this is that notice that the blog post is November 15th. That is the same day that this um, malware was sent and deployed to this customer's website. So what you're seeing is that as soon as a vulnerability is disclosed, there are a lot of script kiddies out there who are basically trying to build botnets based on someone basically handing them an answer key to how to get on a bunch of systems. And so in this particular case, we noticed that the, the file creation dates of November 15th were the same dates as when this vulnerability was disclosed. And so really the only thing the customer did wrong was trust a developer in installing a plugin where the developer really didn't have a good understanding of how to write safe and secure code. And so this gets into a lot of why you hear people um, arguing about the importance of paying for premium plugins versus free plugins. And as a result, I mean, this takes you step by step showing you the proof of concept of what type of message you need to be able to craft in order to take advantage of this. And the end result was that, um, like you saw, the attacker was able to basically upload a series of custom commands, shell kits, uh, etc., to then try and take as much control of the box as possible. Um, again, we're fortunate to have the right tools in place to detect it quickly, 
to make sure that it's localized to only impacting that specific customer um, and to make sure that we can identify and remove the vulnerabilities so that uh, the damage to the customer is, is minimized as much as possible. Uh, but this really gets to the core of the issue, which is that it is becoming increasingly more difficult for the average guy to know when they are installing something that might compromise their blog, that might compromise their computer. Um, and so we are in an era where open source is hot and it's sexy and it's great to have free and community support. But when we trust ourselves with smaller community-driven sites, um, we really open ourselves up pretty wide to um, the larger scares of what's on the internet. And so um, this is just one example of the many, many day-to-day -day, um, attacks that are happening where PHP and other types of injections are taking place. And so I get customers who are coming to Maple Grove now who say, I ran my WordPress site on GoDaddy for a year and it was hacked and I lost my data or it got completely destroyed. And what are you guys doing differently to, um, to avoid that? And this is not really necessarily a sales pitch for Maple Grove, although I suppose you can interpret it that way. It's literally more about understanding just the level of um, effort that goes into being able to protect these sites. And a lot of providers are not giving that level of detail. And so if the, if the user or the person running the website doesn't have that training or is not aware and actively monitoring their, their security, um, this stuff is happening increasingly more times. So, you know, we are getting in um, to territory where we are trying to provide our customers with knowing what customers are, are, what plugins are good to install and what plugins are bad to install and publishing kind of a whitelist and a blacklist so that customers know what the risks are when they're um, enabling certain functionalities on their website. And, you know, this is what's really amazing. This is a very standard plugin. The plugin was designed to help um, WordPress users track their Google Analytics statistics in the, in the WordPress admin dashboard. So, I mean, really just something you would think is harmless, is benign, isn't really going to be uh, taken advantage of. And what's worse is once the attacker gets their initial hold on the system, they're going to do everything possible to make sure that you can't remove that short of doing a complete obliteration. So, in this case, and I'm, I'm not able to show it for privacy reasons of how we have our file system laid out, but they systematically made copies of their command and control capabilities in plugin directories to like appear as if they were part of other plugins that didn't have vulnerabilities. So the same file that does the same thing with different file names put in different plugin folders that were legitimate safe plugins and so you're really starting to deal with a level of sophistication that is over the head of most users who just want to run a blog and be up and running. And so this is getting more and more of an issue I'm drilling home on. Be really careful what plugins you're installing. Be really careful what you're doing out on the internet because now we're getting to a point where um, the, the complexity of web scale and particularly having dynamic websites is really taking a hold because these websites are pretty much fully fledged applications if you're running them on the desktop. And with that comes some of the same level of vulnerabilities. And, um, you know, on chat, Trashna makes a great point. If it's exposed to the internet, it's vulnerable. This is absolutely the case. When you are running a public website, you are inviting the world to go and visit that website. And it's a free for all for anyone to try and find those little holes to kind of drill in. And so from a, information security standpoint, we really want to minimize um, spread. We want early detection. We want to be able to reverse engineer and understand early. And we want to provide our user community with the ability to um, know about plugins early that are going to lead them down this path. Um, Mike asks on chat, are the methods available? Are there methods available to blacklist plugins that become vulnerable on a network level to help the average customer? Um, the answer is yes. There are several um, WordPress uh, security plugins that I will include in this write-up that actually scan um, kind of a vulnerabilities database to say, hey, you currently have a plugin installed that has a known vulnerability. You're very likely to be attacked. Um, you can also, um, so there's different deployments, but there is something WordPress has called a WordPress multi-site deployment. 
And what this basically is, is if you're a, a network provider and you want to run a, a farm of WordPress sites, you can um, put restrictions on what plugins are allowed to be installed and you can kind of um, create a local uh, repository of approved plugins that users can feel safe about installing. Um, we at Maple Grove are more about giving freedom of choice but making informed choices. So we don't restrict what you can install. We just inform and say, hey, don't do that. Um, and so we're getting better and better about um, publishing and making that available. And I mean, from my perspective, I'm actually looking to make that publicly available on our website. So regardless of whether or not you're a customer, um, you can at least benefit a little bit from our threat intelligence and information sharing model. Very cool. What about, um, what about security plugins? From that standpoint, there are a variety out there, Windows, you know, WP all-in-one, WordFence, some of those. What should we be thinking about when it comes to those kinds of plugins? Yeah, so, I mean, those are all good. Um, some of the ones like WordFence will take a baseline of what your file system looks like when you first install it, and then if any changes happen, it's going to alert you. That's kind of one of the best ways to know if maybe something is wrong with your website for a couple of reasons. Number one that technique um, doesn't rely on you having or not having a signature for the malware. It's just saying, hey, something has changed and I don't know why. And it may have changed for a completely legitimate purpose, but at least you know, um, at least you know uh, that a change happened and why it happened. Um, I, then I'm drawing a complete blank on the name of the plugin I'm going to include in the show notes, but there's one specifically that does the vulnerability scanning for um, figuring out if you already have plugins installed that are vulnerable or if it sees things that if it sees things in your file system that match known signatures or heuristics, those are also really important. A lot of these plugins like all-in-one security and whatnot, they're also looking at things like preventing brute force attacks on your admin login. I, 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 that's kind of a trite issue. If you really want to stop that, you change your, um, your endpoint to be a non-obvious um, non location for them to try and brute force. And so if your default is WP admin to log in, you should probably change that to something else. Um, Although, Christian, you and I did that, and I'm still getting, it's like they found it again. Right, and so uh, it's not that they found it again, it's that they are using... So when you use um, like Windows Live Writer, for example, to connect to your site, that has not changed. So there are other ways to try and make logins happen besides going through the web interface. And so we're also going to look at basically figuring out how to change it so that the customer knows how to connect their Live Writer instance so that they can get directly to it. Um, but the average bot hitting that doesn't. We also have just recently turned on. Hopefully it's died down a little bit today. I don't know, but we have custom analytics that see if a bot is trying to start hitting the endpoint that the live writer and other services use, um, it automatically gets blocked out of our entire network so that all customers don't have to worry about it, that in the future. Um, so those are the types of proactive analytics that we take where as soon as they reach a certain threshold, that IP is being dropped at the network level and that's protecting all of our customers, not just the one that is being impact, impacted by the attack. Yeah. Um, all of our... Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, and uh, all of our IPs that we block are publicly available and um, they're in the format that pfSense and other firewalls can understand for updating and automatically blocking those IPs with like PF blocker NG or something similar. You were talking about that other option for them to log in besides the web, you know, the web, the web interface. Mm -hmm. There's a XBRCMC, I forget the name of the, there's a file. XMLRPC.php, that's what yeah, it is, yeah. And is that what you're talking about? In other yeah. words, that's and if I just shut that off, now I would that would that would cripple LiveWriter, so to speak, um, for me. Right. Some of the other issues that I'm uh, still figuring out myself is that I think that also um, when you do um, what do they call it trackbacks or um, like linkbacks, linkbacks on the article and and that I think the third-party site that's trying to get a link back or a trackback is expecting that file to be there. That's why it's a good thing to attack because if you change it, it basically does limit a lot of the third-party integration. Um, so we look more to protect the resource than obfuscate the resource. 
Yeah. Well, you and me, we've, we've got somebody, you know, actively trying to brute force their way in. Now they can't, they're trying to use a user account that doesn't exist. They keep trying over and over, you know, kind of over and over again. The logs, again, WP all in one is what I'm using. The other ones would do this as well. I get some logs available, failed login records. It tells me what's, and in this case, we've got one active user that just keeps, you know, just keeps banging it, banging it, banging it, banging it. It's never going to get in. It's a little annoying because I have email uh, set up. Every time somebody tries to do that, I get an email. So I've gotten uh, dozens to hundreds of emails over the last couple of days since we've gotten some of these things worked out. Yeah. But one of those things to kind of look for, and I think you mentioned earlier, uh, as a as a provider, you may consider some of those to be automatically blocked at the network level so they don't impact the rest of the customers. Obviously, that's an active, you know, hacker, spammer, whatever you want to say, right? Right. No, absolutely. Um, and so... Put their IP address on the web just so people could start, <laughs> no, in the show, just so people can start hacking them back with that. <laughs> Well, I don't know if I'm going to advocate that because you might have other federal law issues to deal with, but um, we provide lists of who these people are so that you can go and block them. And it's even great to do on your home network, right? Like even though these attacks are, you know, targeting web servers and so forth, um, you know, you can subscribe to the Maple Grove Partners list and make sure these IPs aren't coming into your home network. Maybe you're running like a subsonic or you have a little private site or, um you know, maybe someone is trying to DDoS your home router, believe it or not, this stuff does happen. And then people wonder why their home router has to be rebooted. Um, these are the types of ways that you can stop that. Yeah. And I've got some ways my coward says WordFence would stop that. Um, so does WP All-in-One. It's stopping it. It's I'm yeah. getting logs and I'm getting, I've set up, I want to get email notifications. I don't have to do that. I want to get email notifications when those things are at least attempted. We're kind right. of this for some you know, we kind of want to see the activity that's going on right now to just, to, you know, to do some due diligence on it. So, Sure. What most people don't realize, though, about, you know, dealing it at the level of, like, uh, WordPress fence or any of the specific, um, you know, WordPress level plugins that do this type of security management is that every time that person hits the site up prior to you blocking is wasted resources. So that's taking away legitimate compute time from a, a request that's trying to come in um, to serve your web page. And so part of the reason why we, um, like if you go to the Maple Grove Partners homepage, it's a pretty fast load, right? It's not just because it's running on decent hardware or because we're good at load balancing or because we have a fast and optimized theme, although these are a lot of things. It's also because I, I know I have good guarantees that someone isn't, uh, you know, DDoSing and hitting the page every, you know, 100 milliseconds from 20 different IP addresses, all of whom are illegitimate users. So, um, really stopping um, DDoS or just bad requests in general at the network level where you're dropping packets so that the web server never even sees those packets is huge because that changes your performance baselines. Um, and, and most people don't have the ability to do that on shared hosting or otherwise. Um, we really make that a focus and a priority, though, to do network level blocks because... Um, you know, a lot of individual users, they're going to block IP addresses and their HT access file. They're going to block it with these WordPress plugins. Now, guess what? Every time an IP goes and every time someone goes and visits your website, the web server has to look up, are you one of these IPs that I have to block? Now, granted, these lookups are very fast. We've come up with great techniques to be able to do this. Um, but when we're talking about this at scale, it does have a performance consideration. Um, and especially when you see the large, larger scale uh, distributed DDoSs on the XML RPC files, that's when you really start to notice uh, the performance difference uh, between blocking it at the network level and blocking it at the website level. That's a good explanation for sure. The motivations, let's go back a little bit to the motivations again. So uh, you mentioned, I think, two things in there. Let me just clarify those. So as we think about why they would want to take over the site, you mentioned spam, sending spam emails, and there's big money in being able to send out spam, right? So they're basically taking over your server so they can own your IP so that they won't themselves get blocked when they're spending, when they're sending out spam email, right? Yep. That's one. When we think of the other one of being able to actually control the server, what other kinds of things are you seeing besides, um, and, and maybe it's propagating bots, 
uh, as well. But what other kinds of things would we have to worry about there? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, data exfiltration is pretty huge. So if I, um, if I get one of these toolkits up on my web server, um, then I'm going to end up being in a position where um, an attacker might actively be exfiltrating data um, from either my customer site or otherwise. So data exfiltration is pretty big, especially when you have the type of vulnerability that happened in, um, in uh, this particular case study that we walked through. Um, it's, a, it's a really big opportunity for them to steal and siphon off as much data as possible. Um, and it's, it's very similar to ransomware, um, not in the sense that it's encrypting your hard drive and saying, pay me, but there is a lot of malware for desktops that um, steal all your files and then wipe your hard drive clean. Not only do you never get your files back, but they now have all the data on you. Um, Another big one, again, is just zombieing the box so that your computer can later be used in an attack against anything you can imagine. Like a DDoS attack or something. Uh, yeah, and I mean, a good example is um, I remember as a freshman when President Lowe told university students that you know the, the Air Force um, called campus one day and said, why are you attacking us? And it was because there were certain servers at the University of Maryland that had been compromised and they were being used in part of this large coordinated botnet. So that can be bad optically. That's a big value proposition add. Um, there are probably cases for um, kind of black market um, cybercrime that goes on pretty frequently. Um, and then you can get into a whole nother kind of dark net world for what this stuff is used for. Um, but these are kind of some of the common things that a user would worry about. Um, also out in chat, um, the individual impacted by the case study that we walked through uh, has illuminated me on what plugin it is that checks out the vulnerabilities. So um, Centrora Security, C-E-N-T-R-O-R-A Security, is the plugin on WordPress that will allow you to basically um, scan all the current plugins that you have and see if there's any known vulnerabilities in the versions that you have installed. If so, you want to deactivate and disable those as fast as hell um, because those are things that are going to be actively, actively, actively taken advantage of. And if it's in a drive-by attack in the case where they're trying to do this to as many different servers on the net as quickly as possible, um, you can almost guarantee it that it's just a matter of time before your site is hit. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, what else? When we think, uh, when for the average user, when we think of, and you alluded to one about changing the default admin site, mm -hmm. I mentioned um, removing your admin user altogether. In other words, don't yeah. have a, take that out, create a new admin account. Um, I actually recommend, even with WordPress, that you separate out your posting account. So those that you're posting with, make that account separate than your admin account and make your admin account something hard to guess. You treat sure. it like a password. Sure. Point. Any other, when we think about brute force and uh, in, in people just trying to, to, to bully their way in there, any other security recommendations that you might have? Yeah, sure. I mean, so that that's great. For example, um, you know, if I have to guess both your username and password, that means I'm brute forcing two things at once instead of one. Um, which changes yourself to O of N squared complexity, meaning I you know, have to pick a random username and then guess every password possible that I can think of in my dictionary and then move on to the next random guess. That becomes a very hard problem for bots to do successfully, which is why they stick to the, um, the default usernames. Another one is two-factor authentication. Um, I think for a lot of folks in WordPress environments, that might be a little difficult to do. There are a lot of plugins to go out and do it. Relatively simple. I should clarify that, but... Um, it's something that I think users are getting more comfortable with having to come to terms with two-factor being a normal part of life. Um, there are ways to make it painless. For example, if you've done two-factor authentication on the device one time, you shouldn't have to do it again. Um, this, though, makes it such that when an attacker is hitting their site and has never logged in successfully before, it has to get your username your password, and then your two-factor. At that point, you're at a level of complexity that there is not really any modern-day botnet that's going to be able to crack that. Um, so those are all good things. Um, 
Other, I do um, your suggestion of separating out the admin account from the posting account is the idea of least privilege. Um, that's a, a great security they'll, principle. They'll scrape that. They'll go in one of the tactics. They'll go in and scrape that from your post, mm -hmm. and then use that because a lot of people are sharing the same ones. And so right. So that. make sure you go into WordPress and set your nickname for your user account so that the default theme isn't pulling your actual username as the post because that is how they figure it out. I've also seen bots that try and guess the username based on your domain name. Um, so like if you're at theaverageguy.tv, maybe your username was theaverageguy. Um, I have seen that quite a bit. Um, and so those are all some kind of good suggestions for avoiding the fringe of what might happen there. I kind of forgot about the nickname one. I should, and that's, that's one I didn't change. So I'm going to go yeah. in. So that's a, that's a good one to do. Um, and it, it depends. Some themes pull different fields. So you have to kind of look at that pretty specifically. Um, it, well, they have two Nick, they have a nickname and then a display name publicly as, and that is the one I've changed um, to be not the same as my username. Mm -hmm. I had forgotten about the nickname. So I'm going to go and change that right now. Yeah. Um, so, so those are all good on the kind of admin login credential side. Um, again, change the endpoint too, then you don't really have to worry about um, them coming through the web interface as a brute force. Then they're going to use and look at XML RPC and some of the other post-based techniques. For try and by post, I mean an HTTP post um, to try and achieve that goal. Yeah. Um, let's see, what else? Um, so... I think that kind of covers the case study standpoint. Um, I thought I would tie this to a related um, news story that isn't exactly along this thread line, um, but goes to um, kind of a, a larger example of how this is, these types of issues are impacting people. First, I will uh, update questions in the chat room. Um, Mike asks, in this case study that we walked through, um, did they get the credentials? Um, no. So what this basically means is um, what they were able to see is they once they compromise the customer's container, they can obviously see the file system of that customer. We did a forensic analysis to see whether or not those files were actually accessed, modified, or tampered, or exfiltrated, and determined that there was no um, forensic evidence to suggest that that had happened, even though the possibility would have been there for those customer files. We were also able to determine, um, you know, one of the obvious outcomes of that is, well, if I can read your WordPress config file, I can get your password out of your WordPress config file, and now I should be able to connect to your database, right? Well, um, this is true uh, to a point. Usually what attackers will try and do is get credentials to log into your database, and then they're going to want to try and download all the databases on the database server and do other things. Again, the idea of least privilege is that your database user account should be different uh, from anyone else's on the platform, number one. Number two, if you've gone through and A, limited those PHP functions, and B, um, you've taken the extra effort to um, lock down the configuration aspects we talked about, it becomes much harder for the attacker to actually query your database because they can't easily write shell commands that will basically query your database. And so instead, they have to keep uploading new files with the queries that they want. So it's a bit of an end around. Um, the other piece of this too is that if your database server is running on a private network, meaning it is not publicly accessible, this is to your advantage as well because then they have to be actively inside the file system to get there. Um, let's say you detected this malware within an hour of it happening um, and you boot the person out. Well, now they, even though they have stolen your database password, and the IP address and all of it because it's private and they no longer have an uplink, they can't use it. So obviously it's still best practice to use unique database password names. Don't use the password for your database login that you're using for your bank account. God, I hope not. Um, but you know, these are types of things. So at Maple Grove, we take care and automate all that so customers don't make those types of mistakes. Uh, but so at the end of the day, in this particular case, yes, the customer container was compromised. They were able to basically try and run the spam bot, but no, there was no forensic evidence of tampering, modification, or exfiltration, and um, no, no other customers or 
core infrastructure was impacted because of our containerization strategy and because of the security features that we have and because of the analytics and threat monitoring that we're doing to ensure that requests are happening in a legitimate way. Uh, so that answers that question. And then my bridge point was to um, one of my favorite articles in Krebs this week was that the San Francisco rail system um, was hacked and by the same kind of script kitty stuff that we're seeing in WordPress, it's literally happening to your Metro rail. And so they used ransomware on a Metro rail system where it literally encrypted all the computers that make the rail run um, and it ransomware basically the transportation agency that was managing that rail in San Francisco. Um, so that just kind of goes to show you how much public infrastructure is vulnerable to these same types of drive-by attacks. And yes, in this case, it wasn't a WordPress plugin that led to a ransomware attack, but there had to be some open public IP address somewhere on that rail system running an app where they were able to do these same kinds of things, scan it to see what type of software was running. And what you kind of start to find is that a lot of the um, real world appliances you interact with every day are using the same cruddy baseline embedded software to do its stuff. So, I mean, how many grocery stores do you walk into where you can still see the Windows XP or the Windows CE embedded sign hiding behind the custom uh, software that they use for the cash register? I mean, these are the types of code bases that are still out there in massive numbers. And so it makes it very easy for attackers to, you know, yeah, guess what? 99% of them are going to be locked down the right way, but because there's such a large common antiquated code base out there, you only need 1%. And that 1% is still thousands, if not tens of thousands of people um, that are left for high profile targets and vulnerabilities. I mean, the fact that you can take down one of the largest urban populated areas in the country's rail system is no small thing. And this was not a complex attack. I mean, it was script kitty in nature. Um, and so these are the types of things you you think about and you can draw parallels to when we look at some of the um, the WordPress-based plugin attacks that we walk through in this case study. Uh, Drashta mentions uh, Windows. What about DOS? Any is DOS any more <laughs> secure or less secure than you know, we think about? Um, some really old code still out there running in some, you know, does it get secure by obscurity, you know, in that sense? Uh, yeah, yes and no. So security through obscurity is the worst security practice you can implement. It's literally, if you want sec security through obscurity, that's fine, but you should have five other much more dependable methods in place first. Um, you do get some security through obscurity in the sense that uh, the more different types of platforms are out there and the more there's different rates of versions and code systems, yes, there's some obscurity. But by and large, your obscurity goes down or up based on popularity, right? So if everyone's using Windows, that's what the, that's what the attackers are going to write malware for. That's why everyone thinks, oh, Mac never gets viruses. It's not that they don't get viruses. It's that the number of available viruses are much smaller because people spend all their time on Windows. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's there's some of that going on. Um, at the end of the day, too, though, some of the stuff is very targeted stuff. So if I hate Jim Collison, and I want to make sure Jim never podcasts again. It doesn't matter what version of software, your obscurity is gone because I've picked you as a manual target and I want you to be done podcasting. But you were smart and went with a web host provider that makes you sleep well at night and so um, i'll throw that challenge out there christian <laughs> i know that was terrible do we're, we're gonna scrub that from the audio version <laughs> i I'm, I'm not asking for an open invitation here folks uh, I, got, I got enough stuff uh, going on as it is yeah yeah it, you know i always think too like you, we talk about theft and theft of data files there's there's nothing on the average guy.tv server that couldn't be blasted everywhere in the planet i would even care about in fact if they shared my files Awesome. Like go out and share the podcast. You can have them. You can have all of them. They're available to you. So I, I don't get as worried about that. I, I think, you know, for me as a, the end user, I get worried about uh, the total destruction of the site. Although I have pretty good backups and if I had to recreate it, I probably could. It wouldn't be as elegant or as great and it would take us a while to bring it back. But 
if I couldn't restore it from a complete backup uh, type deal. I, I don't, from my standpoint, I don't get too worried about it, but I know there are others who yeah. kind of shake it to the core and, and, um, and there's a lot to think about there. And, and, you know, when you think about working with another host provider, you know, one of the reasons I enjoy working with you on this is, and I've said this publicly in, in various groups is I know you're, you got my best interest in mind and you're paying attention because you're trying to keep the network in good shape. And uh, that means something to me. And, I, and maybe we take a little bit, you know, we take a little bit more downtime than others just because you're rebooting and doing some stuff that's better for the network. Again, I don't, it's not, it's not a money making We're we're podcasts. If it's down for a little bit, nobody dies. You well, know, we we just, also publish our uptime statistics. Um, we were at, 99.87 uptime this month. So a little bit under our 99.9 SLA. Um, so if you want appropriated refund for those, those <laughs> hours, um, feel free. I think I'm good. I'm good. Um, but essentially we try and do as much hot patching as possible. When we go down, we're usually going down for major infrastructure improvements that we feel that users are getting value out of. And because most of our users are based in the United States, we know at what hours the traffic are, um, site traffic is least likely to be um, the lowest volume. So we have basically um, a lot of historical data that shows when we hit our peaks and our lows for the platform as a total. And so we try and do our maintenance if possible um, during those, those valleys in the uh, traffic. You're absolutely right. Sometimes something goes down, hardware goes offline, we try and do failover. Uh, we continue to get better and better at that. But by and large, for being a small shop and being at 99.8, uptime, um, we're doing pretty good from that perspective. Yeah, and I use Uptime Robot to uh, to double check you guys and know what's up or down. And it helps me know. I, I, I'll get a customer from time to time who will say, hey, is your site down? Uh, you know, send me a note and, and I'll look. Oh, yeah, okay, it's down at the moment. It'll be back up here momentarily and uh and so that kind of helps me know I, it's fun to watch i can i can see you rebooting servers that way it's like oh okay we're because i have a couple of accounts with you and so each one of those is tied to an uptime robot um you know uh, event of some sort so kind of helps me keep tabs on what's going on over there yeah for sure what else anything else i, I think that's a good we've been at this man that went fast yeah, time flies when you're having fun or when you have a, a case study, I guess. No, uh, maybe, yeah. maybe we need more case studies. It's a, good, it's a good one. I think it's, uh, you know, maybe one of those uh, you send out to the user base uh, when you're done to say, hey, we talked, you know, we talked about this. I think it's good because it's very specific to the network. I seem like I'm having some skipping issues here. Um, very specific to the network and, and very, I think, just very applicable. A great reminder to us, the end user, of what's going on behind the scenes and why some of those things are important. Mm -hmm. As we were going through the show, I was going through WP Admin or uh, WP Security, and was just like, "Oh, even that is complex." You know, there are maybe one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen different tabs to configure with. And as a new user. Some of those are uh, like, God, do I turn it on or don't I? And, uh, and so even in that, I, I always recommend, you know, turn a few things on, let it run. <laughs> yeah. Come back to it the next weekend, turn a few more things on, right? right. Uh, one at a time, don't be in too much of a hurry. Kind of get to learn your software a little bit uh, before you just, you just start flipping switches and then if something breaks, you have no idea. Um, you know, you have no idea where it's coming from. Right. Yeah. So, all right, cool. All right. Well, good to have you back, Christian. And, uh, and we'll schedule another one of these um, and maybe in December here as we, uh, we push forward. We'll do that after the show. But I'll remind everyone to, if you haven't signed up yet for the newsletter, get that done. Head out to theaverageguy.tv slash newsletter, everything that we have out there. Coming up, upcoming episodes. Christian and I don't plan these far enough in advance for me to put Cyber Frontiers in the newsletter. That's just not regular enough. But, Everything for home gadget geeks is out there. And so if you're interested in doing that, of course, we'll have everything Christian talked about here by the weekend. We will have written up in some show notes and posted over there. If you go to the average guy.tv slash and for this show, cyber frontier CF, and then the number of the show, which is zero three, three, if you want to get to it that way, it'll be on the, you know, it'll be even the top for a while because it takes us a while to get these shows out. But, uh, 
the show notes. They're, they're always worth reading. Christian always does a great job. That's one of my favorite parts about uh, doing this with Christian is he writes the show notes. So and they're always they're always done very, very well. So you should go out and visit those as well. Don't forget, if you haven't subscribed to this yet, you might want to do that. And you can subscribe to Home Gadget Geeks as well. Everything's at theaverageguy.tv slash subscribe if you want to jump in there. And a reminder, everything we talked about, everything is hosted, both web and media hosted, on Maple Grove Partners. So if you head out to maplegrovepartners.com, look at the plans that are available. There's really not an expensive plan there. Ten bucks gets you in the door. For most podcasters, that is all you need to get rolling on that, get set up and get going. And we've taken on a few new customers, I think, in the last couple of weeks. And do you want to be one of those as well? A great way to start. You don't have to be a podcaster. You can just have a site out there. And uh, if you want to do a web, if you want to do a, a you know, a, a WordPress site or, you know, negotiate with Christian on something else. It's not just WordPress, right, Christian? You could do other things. Uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much anything that sings, um, lamp stack, window stack, et cetera. Um, we can host. Yeah. So uh, get out there. Check it out, maplegrovepartners.com. If you enjoyed this, we'd ask that you share it. We want to thank everybody in the chat room for coming out tonight on quick notice. We had uh, some, for the first time ever, Christian, I couldn't believe it. Well, hangouts didn't work. <laughs> like It was pretty great. And terrible. Broken. Like broken, unbelievably broken. I, In the three years or so, maybe four, we've been using Google Hangout on air. I have never seen them broken. And I, I speak very highly of them and all the things that we do. So we didn't get it last done. Or we didn't get it done last night. We got it done tonight. Uh, but if you enjoyed it, we ask that you share it. With that, we'll say goodnight. Good night. Okay, night.